Hello everyone, welcome here. And this is gonna be the first part of a four week series I'm starting on the book of Galatians. We're gonna sprint through the entire book of Galatians in four weeks. And the reason I don't wanna go through it every single verse, verse by tiny verse, is because I don't want you to lose the forest for the trees. In this series, you're gonna learn the one big idea of the book of Galatians and why it's revolutionary for our lives today, okay? But before we even get into that, I wanna recommend to you a book that's gonna, that will absolutely help to transform your devotional life, okay? And that is the book, The New Testament in Its World by N.T. Wright and Michael Bird, and it's up there on the screen right now. It's a pretty expensive book because it's such a thick book, okay? It's probably 50 or $60. However, the reason I'm recommending it is, is I often get questions uh, Chris, can you recommend a commentary for Ephesians or a commentary for the book of Matthew or whatever? The beauty of the New Testament in its world by N.T. Wright is that this book in one thick book has a short, brief overview commentary of every single book in the New Testament, okay? It's not the kind of book you read from cover to cover. It's a reference book that you keep with you for your devotional life, you know, for the rest of your life, so that when you're reading the book of Ephesians, you can first spend some time in this book and reading about the context of Ephesians and what are some of the primary arguments that Paul is making. It's one of by a couple of my favorite New Testament theologians, N.T. Wright and Michael Byrd. It's a phenomenal purchase, and this is a book that you'll keep for decades and that will help you in your devotional reading to understand the New Testament better. Again, it's an investment. It's an expensive book when you think of it in terms of buying one book. It's a cheap book when you think of the investment you're making in terms of understanding the Bible for the rest of your life. And, uh, and it certainly is a book in NT, some of N.T. Wright's writings on Galatians and the New Testament that are, that are certainly helping in the formation of this series that I'm doing on the book of Galatians. All right. So in this first part of this four-part series in on Galatians, I want to answer three big questions today. The first question I want to answer is, what's the big idea? The big idea of Galatians is, is essentially one question, okay? There's one question that is, this is the big question that Galatians is trying to answer, and that is the question, does a person have to become a Jew? Does a person have to obey all the Jewish laws in the Old Testament in order to become a Christian? Okay, now, uh, you know, I'll give away the ending here. The answer is no, all right? Kind of an obvious ending probably for a lot of you, but that's the big question of Galatians. Now, the second question I want to answer is, well, if you just gave away the ending, why spend four weeks in the book of, of, of Galatians? And so the second question I want to answer today is, why should this be revolutionary to us still today? Why does the fact 2,000 years later, I mean, the New Testament church fought this fight 2,000 years ago. Why should this truth that we don't have to become Jews or follow any of the Mosaic covenant laws for the Jews, why should that still be revolutionary for us today? And how does it apply to us today in today's culture? And the third question I want to ask is, and that's the one I'm going to start with is, why on earth is Paul so angry in the book of Galatians, okay? Because the book of Galatians is far and away Paul's most angry letter, okay? If we jump right in there in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, we see this. Yeah, and you have to remember, if you read any of Paul's other letters, almost always he starts by uh, saying a bunch of nice things about the people he's writing to. Even though in most of his letters, somewhere in there, he has a rebuke for someone, he almost always starts his letters off with a list of, here's the stuff I really appreciate about you, okay? Except 
in the book of Galatians, okay? The book of Galatians, Paul starts with a little hello, he praises God, and then he launches in on the Galatians in verse 6, and there's no positive, there's no gratitude for, for any of their good characteristics. He's straight to mad. Verse 6, we, we pick it up here. I am astonished, Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So, I mean, the first things that Paul is saying to these Galatians about, about, you know, what the letter's about is, you're already deserting Jesus, and I'm surprised. I'm shocked at you guys. And then he keeps going, verse 7. Not that there is another one, not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Okay, now that's something I would never say, uh, you know, while preaching a message here at Crossview or any other church. I would, I would never call out people and say, you know, if you believe something different than what I'm teaching you, let you be accursed. The Greek word there is the Greek word anathema, okay, and literally it means to be doomed to destruction. Okay, literally Paul is saying, you know, if anybody teaches anything different than the gospel I've been teaching, let that person be cut off from God and destroyed. Okay, that is really strong, angry language. And by the way, it's not the, I could show you a number of other examples, including later in Galatians, something we'll touch on, you know, in, 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 in this month while we're going through the book of Galatians, where Paul actually tells, you know, some of the people who are opposing him to emasculate themselves. Okay, so Paul is white hot, kind of punching the wall angry in this letter to the Galatians. Now, why is Paul so upset? What is the problem in Galatia that Paul is so upset in this letter? Well, if we go to Galatians chapter 2, okay? But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That's talking about the apostle Peter, by the way like the Apostle Peter, okay? This is not just talking about some Peter guy. This is like the, one of the top guys who is with Jesus, one of, the, one of the inner circle of three within Jesus' inner circle of 12. And he says, that Apostle Peter, you know, the, one of the, the foundation, foundational fathers of the church stands condemned. Why? Why? Why is Paul so upset? What is happening in Galatia that is so ticking him off in this letter. Well, verse 12, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Okay. Which, okay. That goes back to Acts. Well, we'll jump into that. He was eating with the Gentiles. That's a good thing. Okay. Because Jew and Gentile in Christ, they can eat together. Right. But when they came, so certain men came from James, by the way, James is one of the brothers of Jesus. He's another one of the apostles. Okay. One of the key founders. So when a group of people from James comes, Peter, they are a bad influence on Peter, and he drew back and separated himself from the Gentile Christians, fearing the circumcision party. And Paul uh, was mad at Peter, okay? Now, why? Again, because Peter's not eating with the Gentiles. Now, um, this is where we need to do a little bit of background, okay? We need to do uh, just a little bit of background, okay? Um, because you have to understand, why is this even a big deal? Because to us, it just, it feels, ra it, well, it is racist, right? I mean, how is this even something that they're struggling with? Why would Peter 
not want to eat with Gentiles. I mean, that doesn't, you know, the vast majority, at least I hope the vast majority of you who are watching this sermon today online, uh, you do not, sorry, I just got something in my eye here. Uh, you do not struggle, most of you do not struggle with being, you know, overtly racist to the extent where you would not eat with someone because they're a diff different ethnicity than you. you. So when we read this, it doesn't make sense to us. I mean, what? Why the great apostle Peter and, and maybe even the apostle James and all of their buddies, this is a big deal for them? Like, th this is a no-brainer for us 2,000 years later, okay? But this is where we need a little bit of background, okay? A little bit of background and a little bit of empathy. Now, remember, 2,000 years ago, um, you know, becoming a, be, okay, so before Jesus, okay, so 2,000 years ago and more, you know, becoming a, the people of God, okay, ever since Moses at Mount Sinai, okay, when God rescued the people of Israel out of the, out of the land of Egypt, and he said, you are going to be my people. Out of all the nations on the earth, the other nations are not going to be my people, Okay, and we'll get to that later in this, in this sermon as well. But when God rescued Israel out of Egypt, he was literally picking a nation. He was saying, out of all the nations in the world, you are going to be my people. The Israel is my people. Okay, so being part of the people of God in the Old Testament wasn't just a matter of believing. See, we're used to be, you know, Christianity for 2,000 years. We know that to be part of the people of God, it has to do with identifying yourself with Jesus, with trusting in Jesus and being faithful to him and believing in him. But in the Old Testament, being part of the people of God was an ethnicity. It was literally being part of a certain ethnic group because God picked a certain ethnic group. He picked the Jews rescued them out of Egypt and said, you are my people. So it wasn't a matter of who do, what, you know, who do you believe in? It was a matter of, were you an Israelite? Were you a Jewish person? Okay. And so ever since Moses at Mount Sinai, you know, anybody who wanted to be part of the family of God, it wasn't like it is now where you just put your faith in Jesus. If you want to be part of the people of God, you had to not just convert your belief and thinking, you had to convert your culture and, and, and you had to become part of the, of the Jewish culture nation, okay? And so becoming a Jew, you know, becoming part of the people of God, you know, before Jesus meant, number one, if you were a man, that meant you got circumcised, okay? Ooh. And number two... It meant obeying all of the Mosaic laws in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, the Old Testament. It meant obeying all those laws about what to eat, about being separate from the nations, about the Sabbath, about the festivals, about, you know, all those things. You got circumcised and then you obeyed all those laws. That's how you became part of the people of God because it wasn't just about what you believe in your head. It was about becoming Jewish. Now, of course, Jesus came. Right in the in the first century A.D., Jesus comes. He dies on the cross. He rises from the grave, and and his followers. But remember, all of his first followers were Jewish, because Jesus was Jewish, and he his ministry was in Israel. So all of his first followers were Jewish. Okay, so you have to remember that they have been steeped in their entire lives. Okay, they did not grow up Christian like. We have. They grew up 
uh, being taught the importance of being Jewish for being the, the people of God. That's hard to let go of. And so after Jesus rose from the, from the grave, in fact, the very first, you know, the disciples, those very first Jewish Christians, because the first bunch of thousands of Christian believers were all Jews in the book of Acts. That first group of Jewish believers right after the resurrection, um, when they thought of salvation, I'm going to actually put this up on the screen so you can see it. When they thought of salvation, here's what they thought about salvation. Salvation equals putting your trust in Jesus and being a Jew and following all the Mosaic laws. The only laws they were taking out is the sacrifices because they, they realized, okay, Jesus died on the cross, so he's the sacrifice. So we don't need to do any, those anymore. But the rest of the Mosaic laws, you still got to do, okay? So before Jesus, the Jews thought salvation equals, you know, become a Jew, right? And follow all the Mosaic laws, be circumcised, follow the Mosaic laws. After Jesus rose from the, from the dead, those first Jewish Christians just added one piece, trust in Jesus. But they still kept the part about you got to be Jewish, you got to be circumcised, you got to follow all the Mosaic laws. But then, okay, then in the book of Acts, this is where the book of Acts comes in. I'm just building up to give you the con context, by the way, for the book of Galatians. Then in the book of Acts, okay, Acts chapter 10, God gives, a, you know, a, a vision to the apostle Peter, you know, the picnic blanket with the different foods on it, including the Gentile foods, the unclean foods. God speaks to him and says the Gentiles are clean. He sends Peter to Cornelius, who's a Gentile soldier. Cornelius gets saved. The Holy Spirit falls him. Peter goes back and in Acts 11, they have a big church, uh, you know, uh, conference, debate, discussion. And all the bigs are there, all the disciples, Peter and James and all the big ones and John. And they have this huge conference and they discuss, can a Gentile become a follower of Jesus without becoming a Jew? And they answer, yes. Okay. Now that was a huge watershed moment for the church. Okay. But here we are now, years later, some years later, I don't know exactly how uh, many years later. And here we find Peter has been backsliding. He's been going back to separating himself from the Jews. People from the apostle James are doing it. And it's, and it's spreading. Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 13, uh, right after the part about Peter, he says this, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, that's Peter, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So the apostles that had this conference, they said, look, people, you know, Gentiles don't have to become Jews to be part of the people of God. But now there's this like backsliding, the top leadership, the apostles themselves are backsliding back into, uh, you have to observe the Jewish customs. You have to get circumcised. We're going to eat separately from you with Jews and Gentiles are separate as part of the salvation. And we're going to look at some of the reasons why, but imagine if if nothing had happened, imagine if no one had been there to stop them. Because if this is what the top apostles were doing, imagine if the apostle Paul had not been there to stop them in this. I wonder if today the Christian church would just be a tiny Jewish sect still today. And if it, if it would be a worldwide, you know, great commission church with more than a billion people. But thankfully, the apostle Paul, that big stubborn stick in the mud, okay, uh, didn't He didn't care that Peter and these other guys were the big names. He stood up to them. So it says this in verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, the, the boss of Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. In other words, Paul's like, 
I know, Peter, you're not doing all the Jewish customs and Mosaic laws anymore. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews, okay? And this is right there, this is the big question of, of Galatians, okay? This is the big question. Do you have to become a Jew in order to be part of the people of God? Do you have to follow the Mosaic laws, the, the circumcision, the Sabbath, the tattoos, the eating laws, the, all of that? Do you got to follow that to be a believer? And of course, you will already know what that answer is because we're not practicing Jews as Christians here at Crossview for sure. And, and there are very few of such Christians around the world today. But if you just hang on, I'm also going to show you at the end of this sermon why this message is still revolutionary for us today and how it applies to us today. Okay, but before we even get to, just before we get to that part, the revolutionary part of the message, because I know it's 2,000 years old, and I know, you know, the Jew-Gentile thing, it doesn't feel like a big issue anymore in the church today, but there are some amazing things about it still today that I'm going to show you. But before we even get there, I first want to explore a little bit of the context. Why would the, like, what is going on in the Apostle Peter's mind? What's going on? Is the Apostle James part of this too? I'm not sure, but at least people close to him are. What is Barnabas? What, you know, these are the people we respect. These are the people who, who wrote, you know, you know, you know, chunks of our New Testament scriptures. Okay. Um, what would cause them to be reverting back and, and, and being hypocritical on such an important foundational question that today we just take for granted. And I want to dive a little bit. I want to, I, I, I just want to do a little bit of a history lesson, a context lesson that is going to bring your New Testament alive. That when you're reading Paul's letters in your devotions, this is going to bring, you know, the New Testament letters alive when you see the context in which these people were living and the pressure that was on them and why that pressure was there. Okay. And so let's start by talking. And this is so, so important to do right in the first message of a series in Galatians because it's going to open up the pathway for us for the rest of the book of Galatians, okay? But let's go back to Roman times, okay? What's, what was life like in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago? What was the worldview, okay? And the first thing you have to understand, and this is huge, and, and it just pops up throughout the New Testament, but you have to understand, first of all, that living in Rome 2,000 years ago was nothing like the worldview was totally different than it is today. It was nothing like living in society today. And that's why sometimes some of the things that happen in the New Testament and some of the things that Paul says, are, it's just like, what? Okay? But that's because life in the Roman Empire was totally different to, than today. And one of the big ways in which it was different and one of the ways in which the worldview was just so absolutely almost opposed to how we think and live today in the, in the 21st century is that in Roman times, I mean, all over the world, but in the Roman Empire specifically, people had uh, a very supernatural worldview. And what I mean by that is the Romans, just like many, you know, and we've talked about this in some of the Old Testament passages in the ancient Near East. This is a bit of a different context, but some of the worldview is still the same, is the Romans believed very much in a pantheon of gods. That there were all kinds of gods out there and that Nature itself, they did not think scientifically, they did not think about things like gravity or forces of nature or, you know, being able to scientifically study things. Uh, everything was controlled by gods and they had many gods, okay? 
Uh, there were gods that controlled the weather. There were gods that controlled, you know, wealth. There were gods that controlled fertility, okay? There were gods for everything. There were gods of war. So if you were going to war, you know, there were certain gods you would offer sacrifices to. If, if you wanted your wife to get pregnant, there were certain gods you would offer sacrifices to. If you didn't want to get sick, there were, there were certain gods you would offer sacrifices. If you wanted to get better from a certain sick, sickness, there were specific gods. The whole world was seen through the lens of many, many gods. And you had to keep the gods happy in order to have a good life. And so worshiping idols, so you have to understand that in, in Roman times, Idols were everywhere. I mean, this wasn't like, you know, nowadays we have different religions and thank God we have freedom of religion here in Canada. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But it wasn't like that, like, you know, you can drive into Winnipeg and you can see various temples and various, you know, buildings for different faiths. It wasn't even like that. It was, it was everywhere. It wasn't just in a building here, a building there. That pantheistic religion was everywhere. Every house you would go into it would have household gods. Sometimes they even worshipped their own ancestors, but then they would have, each family would have certain gods that they were praying to for this or for that help in this area or that area and for luck in this area or whatever. Every house would have idols in it, okay? If you wanted to be involved in business, in many of the cities, there were trade guilds. If you wanted to be a merchant or you wanted to work with fabrics or dye or whatever it is, you would have to join essentially kind of like a, a union, a guild, a trade guild. And that trade guild would be devoted to a certain god that they hoped would help them prosper in their trade. And so if you wanted to be in business, you would have to make sacrifices to that those gods and do festivals to those gods. And there were special holidays throughout the year where the Romans would have to offer sacrifices to the gods that permeated every area of life, civic life, uh, business life, personal life, okay? And the thing is, you were expected. Now, it wasn't just like a state religion in the sense that you were you were afraid the police were going to come and get you if you didn't do what you were supposed to, although it included that as well. But it was way bigger than that. So you have to understand, when everybody in society thinks that everything good or bad that happens to them and to their city and to their to the empire is because of the gods, then everything, it, it the whole society is responsible together to make sure to keep the gods happy. That's huge, okay? To keep the gods happy. So anyone who ignored the gods, this is what you have to understand in, in Roman times, Anyone who ignored the gods was considered to be a danger to the community. Do, do you understand that? Because if, it, like, I'm doing my part, I'm making my sacrifices to the gods, and I'm trying to keep the gods happy, if my neighbor is not offering sacrifices to the gods and keeping the gods angry, I could suffer for that. There could be a famine on this city, they could get sick, and I could get sick from them, you know, bad, a fire could break out, and so... People were on the lookout as to, you know, who's keeping the gods happy and who's not keeping the gods happy. Because if you didn't do that, then you were a danger to everyone. By the way, this is why some of the earliest persecutions of the Christians, uh, one, of the, one of the rumors that spread about early Christians in the first couple of centuries was that Christians were atheists. Isn't that crazy? We Christians, I mean, can you imagine an atheist today thinking that we Christians are atheists? They say, that's crazy. We're not atheists, we believe in God. But because Christians didn't walk around bowing to all the idols and offering sacrifices to every different idols and, and you know, participating in all the festivals and holidays to the idols, 
People started to say they're atheists, they don't believe in any gods, and it led to persecution because whenever bad things would happen in a place, it was easy to blame the Christians. That's why when there was a you know, huge fire in Rome, Nero was able to easily blame the Christians. He said it's all their fault and you know, persecutions broke out. This is why, because that's how people thought. Now, there was one exception, and this is where the rubber begins to meet the road in terms of the New Testament and so much context in the New Testament is going to happen. See, because in the Roman Empire, there was one exception. There was one group of people who was given an exception by Rome, a legal exemption from having to worship all the different idols and worshiping Caesar himself in the different temples. There was one group of people, a tiny minority group of people, who was allowed an exemption from all the, 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 the pantheon worship. And that was the Jews. See, the Jews were incredibly, for, for centuries already, they had been known for this. They were incredibly stubborn that they would only worship their God, our God, the God of the Bible. They would only worship their God, the one true God of the universe. That's it. And they would worship nobody else. So eventually the Romans actually gave in. They said, okay, we're going to give you an exemption on one condition, okay? One condition, and that's the condition that you guys will pray in your official temple in Jerusalem for Rome, for the Roman Empire, and for the Roman Emperor. If you will play, pray regularly for us, you don't have to pray regularly to us and to our gods. And so if all the people in the Roman Empire, this one tiny minority gets an exemption, they don't have to participate, in any idolatrous festivals or feasts that they don't want to if they're Jewish. Now, of course, this made circumcision even more important than it had been before. I mean, it was always important since God gave it to Abraham. But now in the Roman Empire, it became super important because now, you know, you can't just have anyone saying, well, I don't want to participate in this because I'm a Jew. So you had to prove that you were a Jew. And people would ask because, you know, it couldn't just be that everybody starts claiming this exemption now. You actually had to be Jewish to do that. Well, one of the defining traits of the Jews was circumcision. And so that was one way they could check, right? That's one way they could check is, are you circumcised? If you're circumcised, if you've gone through a circumcision, you're a real Jew, okay? And you get your exemption. You don't have to participate in these uh, idolatrous uh, feasts and rituals and holidays with us. Now, here's where the problem comes in for the Christians. So now, after Jesus rises from the dead, you have this new sect of what at first is Jewish people. And they're following the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. Now the question becomes, are they Jews? Do they qualify for the exemption? Right? And this is important to the Christians because they're like, well, we're not going to, we follow the one true God too. And that true God is Jesus. So we don't want to, we, we can't bow to idols. We can't be worshiping idols. Okay. And so uh, now at first it didn't matter. At first, the first group of Christians was just, it was just Jews. They were all Christians. And it, to Rome, it just looked like, well, that's just one more kind of denomination. That's just one sect of Jews within the bigger group of Jews. Okay. But now, as the church begins to spread out, and Paul in particular, the, you know, the missionary, the, the missionary apostle, as he spreads over the Roman Empire, we have more and more and more non-Jews giving their lives to Jesus Christ and becoming Christians. And they're now claiming, all of these people are now claiming the exemption. 
They're saying, hey, we're part of the Jew, we're part of the Jewish sect. We don't want to, we don't want to obey idols. We don't want to worship idols. We can't worship idols. Okay. And so this created uh, uh, two sides of pressure now. Okay. So let me help explain to you tons of the background of the New Testament right here in just one little piece. Now the Christians are getting pressure from both sides. On the one side, they're getting pressure from the Romans and Rome who are saying, wait a minute, we don't want all kinds of people not worshiping the gods. Like, again, this is, they're nervous. We, we can't tick off the gods. I mean, it was fine when it was just the Jews, okay? They, 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 it was just a pain in the neck trying to force them all to do this and they wouldn't do it. So we made this one little exception, but we don't want to tick off the gods by in, including a whole big group of other people. So they have pressure from the Romans, from Roman people, from the Roman government, from the Roman magistrates that, wait a minute, you guys, do you, like, should you really be getting this exemption? But then they're also getting persecution and pressure on the other side from the Jews. Here's why. And this is why in the New Testament, some of these people don't understand. Are, were the early Christians getting persecuted by the Romans or were they getting persecuted by the Jews? Were they getting pressured by, you know, the Gentiles or were they getting pressured by the Jewish people? And the answer is both. And the reason the Jewish people, see, the Jewish people were frightened. They were frightened by this new movement of Christians and they thought to themselves, like, we just barely, we just barely have this exemption from Rome that we don't have to worship all these idols and we can serve God and have our temple. And if these Christians get too big and the Romans get upset, we could lose our exemption. And there was, so there was pressure from the Jewish side, there was pressure from the Roman side. The Jewish side is saying, look, either you're a Jew or you're out. We don't want to be associated with you. You're not part of us, okay? And then within that, okay, so now within that, now you have to understand the dynamic that's going on inside the church because you have many Jewish Christians in the church, people like the Apostle Peter and the Apostle James and Barnabas and all these people. You can now start to understand the pressure these guys are under. If we're going to keep this exemption, if we're going to keep the Jewish people happy, we're going to keep the Roman people happy, maybe we should just emphasize our Jewishness a bit more. And I know, sure, you know, God, you know, we saw with Cornelius there, Acts 10, 11, we saw that whole thing that, yeah, God's saving the Gentiles now, but is it really so bad if we, if we emphasize, you know, maybe the Gentiles all just should get, the Gentile Christians should get circumcised. Let's observe some of the eating laws. Let's do these things and let's emphasize our Jewishness, okay? And you can understand now if you were in their spot, wouldn't that be tempting? And second of all, why would it be a big deal? I mean, I mean, getting circumcised is a bit of a big deal, but at least, you know, once you're through it and you heal up, well, hey, okay, it's not, you're not going to go to hell because you got circumcised. You're not going to go to hell because you follow a bunch of the Jewish laws and Sabbaths and festivals from the Old Testament. Why not just follow those Mosaic covenant commands and lighten the pressure from the Jewish side and the Roman side? Okay, and this is where Galatians comes in. Because that is the question. Clearly, that's what Peter's thinking. That's why he's sliding back. Clearly, that's what Barnabas is thinking. That's why he's sliding back. These aren't bad guys. Why would they slide back on this stuff? Why would they slide back into the emphasizing the Jewishness for salvation? So the question is, why would Paul be so upset? Why is he so worked up? Why not just allow for a bit of compromise on this? And they'll, because they'll, they'll just go to heaven anyway, right? If the whole point is just about going to heaven, who cares? Follow the Jewish commands. Let's get out of persecution. 
But this is where you have to understand that it is not just about going to heaven. And now you have to understand Paul's theology. Why is Paul so passionate that no matter how much we get persecuted, we cannot go back to having to be Jews to be part of the people of God. Not that it's bad to be Jewish, but you don't have to make Gentiles, don't have to become Jews to become part of the people of God. Why is Paul so passionate about it? And why is this worth being persecuted about? I'll tell you why. Because it's not just about going to heaven. See, we modern Christians have made the the Christian life all about going to heaven. Just pray a prayer, go to heaven. And amen, it's so great, you know, not to go to hell, awesome, you know, to live for all of eternity, yes. But we have to remember, what I keep saying to you guys is, we're not supposed to be going away to heaven, God's coming to earth. But it's more than that. God's desire has always been to have a people to himself here on the earth. That's why he went to all the trouble of rescuing Israel out of Egypt. He's like, I want a family of people to myself. And he rescues them out of Egypt. He says, I want to have a people to myself here on the earth. By the way, this is why when you, be, when you give your life to Jesus, he doesn't just whisk you up to heaven. Going to heaven has never been the goal. You, got, you, you gave your life to Christ so that you could become part of his people here on the earth. And someday he's going to come to earth and establish his rule here forever where we will never die or sin again. But in the meantime, he already wants a people to himself right now. Think about this. Why didn't God, if, if God just wants us in heaven, why didn't he just create Adam and Eve in heaven to begin with? Why go through all of this stuff? I'll tell you why. Why did he create the earth in the first place? Because the earth is his place to live with his family. That's what he's always wanted, to have a family here on the earth. Now, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, okay, they broke up, they delayed the plan. God made the earth, the whole purpose of the earth, so that he could have a family to live with here on the earth. Adam and Eve delayed the plan. But God right away gets back, and now we're going to go to Genesis chapter 12, because, and I'm going to show you a passage that Paul is going to quote several times in the book of Galatians. And as we're going to see in these future weeks, it's going to be a core part of Paul's Galatian argument. And that is Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, and uh, this is God's promise to Abram. This is, you know, Adam and Eve have messed up a few chapters earlier. And now God is going to get back on to the plan of he wants a family here on the earth. And the Lord said to Abraham, and I will make you of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God has always wanted a family here on the earth, and he's always wanted his family to include all the families. See, God doesn't want his family all to look the same or sound the same or act the same or think the same. God wants a family on the earth that is tied together by their love for him, but that involves every ethnicity and culture on the earth. Now, when God started this plan, so that's his big plan to to Abraham right from the beginning. He says, I'm going to start my family that's going to include all the families. It's, it's going to include all the families. I'm going to start my family through you, Abraham. But then the next stage of his plan, he starts small. 
He doesn't start his plan with all the families of the earth. He starts his plan for all the families of the earth with one family on the earth. He picks Abraham. Then he picks a certain group of Abraham's descendants. It's not even all of Abraham's descendants. It's just some of them, the ones who come through Jacob, the Israelites. He rescues them out of Egypt. And then he does something very interesting because the whole vision is he wants to have a family that includes everyone. But the first thing he does when he pulls Israel, the Israel nation out of Egypt, is he puts a whole bunch, he puts a wall around them and separates them from all the other nations. He gives them this thing called the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Testament laws. And, and the, one of the biggest purposes of those laws is actually not to include the other nations, but actually to exclude them. Read the book of Leviticus and how many times God talks about being separate from the nations. Okay? And he gives them eating laws so that they eat differently. And he gives them circumcision to separate them out from the surrounding He gives them the Sabbath and their own festivals and, and their own scriptures. And he does a whole bunch of things. And he says, you must separate yourself from the other nations. So at first, God's plan was very exclusive because he wanted to start fresh. He's going to make one big family in all the earth, but he didn't want this family to be just like all the nations of the world. He wanted to start fresh. So he starts exclusively. He starts with one family and he gives them the messianic prophecies. And in the Old Testament, the people of God are a separate people. But then what's so exciting is when Jesus, and this is the thing that blows Paul away, and this is Paul's primary gospel. When he talks about my gospel throughout the New Testament, the primary thing he's referring to is the fact that after Jesus' death, death and resurrection, the time of Genesis 12, the promise of Genesis 12 is finally here. The time of the new creation and the open family of God throughout the earth has finally come. There are no barriers. You no longer have to be Jewish or follow any of the Mosaic Covenant in order to be one of God's people. Let me show you this in Ephesians 2 and then I will finish with a passage back in Galatians. Look at Ephesians 2. And this is what Paul is so energized about throughout his letters. Therefore, remember, he says in Ephesians 2, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, that's all of us who are not Jewish, called the uncircumcision, because Gentiles don't get circumcised, by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. So before Jesus came, the Gentiles could not be in the family of God unless they switched nations and became Jewish. That at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, okay, the promise of Genesis 12, I'm going to bring all the families into my family. And in Jesus, Jesus is the fulfillment of Genesis 12. Now you who are far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What's the dividing wall of hostility? The Mosaic Covenant. It's the Mosaic Covenant given at Mount Sinai that kept the Jews and the Gentiles separate. Look at this, verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, Leviticus and, and Numbers and Deuteronomy, that he might create in himself one new man, not talking about a human person here, but one new family, one new nation, 
that he might create himself one new family in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the, Christ, uh, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Okay? Let me just review a couple things. I'm just going to put them up on the screen. The Mosaic Covenant was just for the Jews. That was a covenant God made with the Jews. He never made that with anyone else. Okay? And in Jesus, his death and resurrection, the Mosaic Covenant has been abolished so that there is no more dividing wall of hostility. So now, now anybody, now Genesis 12, we're no longer in the Mosaic period. We're in the Abrahamic period. In fact, this is, by the way, what the New Testament would call the end times. The end times started the moment the dividing wall came down. So now Jew and Gentile alike can be part of the family of God. That's the end times. The end times have been going on for 2,000 years. And the end times will only end when God fulfills everything by coming down to earth to live with us, Jew and Gentile, on the earth. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. What about do not murder and do not commit adultery? Some of the Mosaic commandments have to do with right and wrong. And certainly right and wrong still matter today. And we'll touch on that some more in Galatians. But the Mosaic Covenant as a whole is gone. But now I want to finish this sermon with this. This is part one of our four-part series on Galatians. And some of you might be wondering, well, I just can't get that excited about Jew and Gentile together because I already believe that. I mean, I just grew up that way. That's obvious. Are there any other implications the fact that the dividing wall of hostility has come down. Are there any other revolutionary implications for how we as Christians are to live today and what it means to be the people of God on the earth today? And the answer is yes. And we're going to finish part one of this series here with what part of, you know, a big part of Paul's manifesto of the book of Galatians happens in chapter three. And Paul says this, he makes this, you know, kind of stirring conclusive statement to his argument of Galatians. He says this, starting in verse 26 of chapter 3, For in Christ Jesus you all, all, Jews and Gentiles, Romans and Israelites, Canadians, Americans, Hispanics, everybody, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now look at this. Here, this is stunning. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Okay, so we get that. Okay, anybody can be saved in Jesus. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Remember, he's referring back to Genesis 12, when God said through, your off through Abraham's offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You get to be counted as part of that pro promise. That's what it means. You, because of Jesus, are now part of the God-blessing family of Genesis 12, heirs according to the promise. So what is the defining characteristic of God's family on the earth? According to Paul's big, you know, statement here, what is one of the defining traits of the family of God here on the earth? And I'm going to tell you what it is. It's that we break down barriers. The family of God is for all. Not so that, first of all, that starts with ethnic barriers. Who are we as the family of God? What does it mean? And the Galatians is diving into this. 
If it's true that you don't have to be a Jew, that ethnicity doesn't matter when it comes to be part, being part of the family of God, then what does it mean to be part of the family of God? One of the things that defines us is we are the ones who break down barriers. That's what it means to be part of God's family. That's what God does. By the way, here in Canada, that would have huge implications for us as evangelical Christians and the indigenous people of Canada. Isn't that true? Because if we are truly living, see, Galatians isn't just about Jew and Gentile. It's about Canadian and Mennonite and indigenous and African and Hispanic and all of that too. It means there are no more dividing walls of hostility. And you know what that means as Christians? Rather than hanging on to our traditions and our commandments, the things we think make good Christians. Are we on the leading edge of breaking down the barriers, for example, that keep us separate from the indigenous peoples of Canada? Do we pray for reconciliation? Do we speak reconciliation? Do we love with a heart of reconciliation? Do we weep when we see the news of how we and in many cases, in the name of Christ, how Christians in the name of Christ have abused the, the indigenous people over the centuries. It's terrible. That's not what the family of God is. We are not exemplifying Christ, the family of God. We're here on earth to be the family of God. And what is the defining characteristic of the family of God? It's not the color of your skin. It's not your cultural practices. It's that you break down barriers. That means we embrace and love and pray for indigenous, African, Hispanic, European, everything. Also has to do with gender. You notice gender is in there. There's no male or female. He's not saying that there's no gender, that there's no such thing as male or female. What he's saying is there's no difference. There is equality. There's difference in the sense of our bodies, but there's no difference in terms of respect. There's no difference in, in terms of love. I wonder again, how often over the centuries have we as Christians utterly failed to be the family of God on the earth because we've erected barriers. We've put women under men in the church, how often, and in the home. Paul says here, there's no male or female. In the family of God, we're breaking down those divisions. Women can lead, men can lead. Women can submit, men can submit. Both can do both, and both need to do both. And rich and poor, treat each other with dignity. This is the big message of Galatians. There's no barriers. In God's family, how do we act as the family of God here on the earth according to Galatians? In God's family, power and fear. In God's family, that's a church. Power and fear are not used to control people. In God's family, we do not talk about submission in the sense that we want to lord it over. We don't talk, you know what, in, too often in church history, the church has emphasized submission, but it's always a one-way submission. Wives submit to husband. You know, uh, uh, you know church, churches submit to pastors. It's always a one-way submission. The church has preached lots of submission. Did you know that the Bible does not preach one-way submission like that? I'll tell you what the Bible preaches, mutual submission. It's not about pastors or leaders lording it over others and telling them what to do. It's not about husbands telling wives what to do. Absolutely not. It's about mutual submission. It's about us serving each other. 
That's the only kind of submission. The only kind of control that's okay in the church today is self-control. Not leader control, not husband control, not dad control. It's self-control. And so with that, we're going to explore many of the rest of the implications of this and, and the rest of Galatians in the next three weeks after today. But I want to give you a homework assignment since we're in Galatians. Let's dive into Galatians together this month. I would challenge you, if you can, uh, read the first three chapters of Galatians this week. You know, uh, read a cha you know, chapter one one day and chapter two another and chapter three another. Maybe if you get a chance, read through them a second time. And let's prep and come ready to hear what God might say to us through Galatians in this series. Let me pray for you and then we'll be finished today. Thank you, Father, for the book of Galatians, which teaches us that it's not about ethnic boundaries. We don't have to become Jewish. We don't have to obey the Mosaic Covenant in order to be your people. You, your death on the cross broke down the walls. The walls of control and abuse between genders, between ethnicities. Father, between rich and poor. Father, we want to, at cross for you, be a church that lives this out to the absolute maximum. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.